five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hey everybody, I'm recording from Santa Fe today with Esha Kiyokio. How are you doing today? I'm well, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I just got through your name. That's step one, and I, I think I, I think I did all right. We were joking a second ago about how to introduce you because I first met you. You were a photographer, and you still are a photographer, but you're doing a lot more today. You're, you're also a sustainability consultant, among other things. And I was asking before, how would you describe yourself if I met you on an airplane and said, hey, what do you do? There's no short answer for that. (laughs) It kind of depends on the context. I am, like you said, both a photographer and a sustainability consultant uh, and a mom. Um, And I feel like the last several years have been more focused on the sustainability aspects, partly because I am a mom. I was a photographer before I had kids, and then it got harder to do the type of photography I wanted to do with the kids in tow. Okay. And... Uh, so I decided I really wanted to do something that I could do here in Santa Fe and not feel a need to travel as much. Okay. Um, and so I went back and I got a master's degree in sustainable communities and started working first with the, well, I'm still working for the Santa Fe Watershed Association. I okay. wrote the climate adaptation plan for Santa Fe. And that sounds like an official real plan. The climate, <laughs> what was that? The long title is the Forest and Water Climate Adapta- Adaptation Plan for Santa Fe. Wow, that sounds heavy. Well, I don't know how heavy it is, but it's a plan. We worked with, you know, a whole broad range of people who work with the forestry service, with the water department, with um, city management type people. And we created a plan uh, for the city to navigate the projected climate changes that we'll be seeing. So. Well, I'm going to go back one second. Yeah. And when you said you're also a mom, so I think you can always tell a lot about someone by their kids. And uh, I don't have any kids, and I'm never going to have any kids. However, if I was going to have kids, your kids are unbelievable. And I've known them since they were relatively small. I don't know how old they are now. Uh, Every time I see, especially Zubin, I see him, and he's like uh, taller than I am. But your kids are unbelievable. They're like smart and funny and mature, and they're just really wonderful kids. So that's, uh, I'm thinking you might have done something right. You might be a decent person, you know, if your kids turned out like decent, that. They're decent. amazing. Thank you, Dan. I, I love my kids. Yeah. They're 10 and 12 now. 10 and 12. Yeah. Wow. Jeez. Zuman looks, he's way bigger than a normal 12, at least uh, way bigger than I was at 12. But, uh, and so the, the sustainability thing, okay, we're going to, I want to go back a little bit. So, um, you were in the Peace Corps in Mali, which uh-huh. sounds, and you also studied French, which is a nice, uh, nice little pairing there. What was Mali like, and why did you end up in the Peace Corps? Well, so in college, I did I did a double major, anthropology and French, and my French, my honors thesis was on um, French-speaking West African literature. Wow. And so I was very interested in West Africa. (laughs) So it had nothing to do with with photography at the time, but um, I was very interested in West Africa, and I just knew that's where I needed to go. Um, Peace Corps, however, I decided when I was 11 that I was going to do the Peace Corps. Oh, really? So um, anyway, that's another story. But so, yes, I got assigned to Mali. I really wanted Cameroon, but, you know, you take what you get, right? And then I totally fell in love with Mali, and I think it was actually a really good placement for me. I was in the Jene area, a little village 20 kilometers outside of Jene, and which is a huge cultural center. There's a, the largest mosque in West Africa there. There's a lot of history there. It's a, the largest adobe, adobe structure in the world. Wow. It's a really cool, um, it's a national, or a international, oh, sorry, it's a world heritage site. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway... And the people there were fabulous. And I feel really fortunate to have been there at a time when it was so peaceful. Everybody just laughs all the time. I mean, they just have great sense of humor. I felt totally safe. I hitchhiked all over that country, single white woman, no wow. problems ever yeah. for two years. So anyway. It's you, it was a two-year stint. Two, I, I ended up being there two and a half years. So three months of training, two years Peace Corps, and then I ended up staying on and training the next group. What's training for Peace Corps like? 
<laughs> it's like, this is how you use the bathroom here. This is how you take a shower. <laughs> this is how you count to 10 in Bambara. You know, it's language. It's culture. Wow. It's how you deal with the money. It's very basic stuff. And where do you, does that training take place? Bamako, or just outside of Bamako. Oh, okay. It's in country. It's in, it's in country. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, Three months, Molly. How old were you? I went straight out of college. I think I was 22. And was photography part of your life at this point? I had always photographed. Um, and I did a lot of traveling with my family when I was growing up. And okay. I was always kind of the photo- the family photographer, uh-huh. you know. Um, and... And I got I got my first SLR. It was a Nikon FM2 when I was 16. Yeah, that's a great camera. And mom, my mom got it for me and spoiled me with some good long lenses. And then we went to Kenya, Ooh, and so nice. I got safari. to do the safari thing with my, you know, with my um, with my new camera. So that was super cool, and it kind of gave me the bug. And so, how long was it when you left Mali? Peace Corps two years is up, and you decide you're going to take off. And where did you end up after Mali? Um, well, I landed, my mom in the interim had moved to Sedona, Arizona. Okay. And so I went there yep. and uh, tried to figure out what was next. Yep. And uh, I have to back up a little bit. While I was in the Peace Corps, Sarah Lean, who oh, yeah. is National Geographic. National Geographic, yep. right? And at the time, she was a photographer, just she wasn't, you know, the director of the photography department. So um, anyway, she came and did a story on Jenna. And she had written to all of us volunteers in the area before she came and said, mm. I could really use some help while I'm there. You know, if yeah. you have any insights or whatever, I'm coming and I'd love to meet you. Wow, that's a good connect. Yeah, it was great. So um, so I met her while she was there. And by chance, I, meanwhile, had been taking pictures in Mali and had an exhibit up to raise money for girls' education down in Bamako at the okay. time when Sarah was there. So and that was just by chance. Um so anyway, Sarah came, and I helped her with logistical stuff while she was there. And she knew that I was a photographer as well, and not official. I wasn't, you know, yeah. working a working photographer at this time, but she knew I took pictures and had a camera. So long story short, she asked me. She left. You know, she did her story. She left. But the big event, it's like the Super Bowl, Super Bowl of Gen A, is the mudding of the Mosque of Gen A. Okay. And so... Um, she had to leave. The mosque had not been mudded that year. And anyway, long story short, she contacted me and said, we need this event. Can you photograph it for Ooh, my story? Nice. I know. It was total luck. So um, I said, yes, I can do that. And to make a very long story short, I waited and waited, and they were not doing it that year. And then the rains were coming. They sent me the film and the contract and all that, and I'm just waiting. And my Peace Corps contract ended. They still hadn't done it. Whoa. I had a trip already planned with the rest of my family. Um, afterward, long story short, I left, the, I, I contacted them. I said, look, the mudding of the mosque hasn't happened yet. What do I do with all this film? They said, leave it in the Peace Corps refrigerator in Bamako. We'll find somebody else to shoot this story. Mm. So I said, okay. And so I did that. Somebody else shot the story. I have no idea who. And there was not a single usable image. Ooh, not good. They didn't, they didn't like what the Anything. person came back with. Yeah, it wasn't of the quality that they were looking for. That's pretty bad. Yeah. So, but it was good for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because you're like, yeah, I would have nailed that. <laughs> so the night, so then I, I came back home. I had a couple months. I can't remember in Sedona, just kind of zoned out you in Sedona. land after <laughs> coming back from Mali. You're like, what planet am I on? So anyway, I had to reacclimate to American life. And then I decided I'm going to take some photography classes and get more serious about this. Cause yeah. Some things are opening up and whatever. So I went to the Santa Fe Photographic Workshops. Yep. I took four workshops. They said, do you want a job? I said, yes. And I was work study, course assistant. Then I became um, operations assistant. And in that time, I did, I did two semesters with them. And then I had a five-week break. Uh-huh. And I, and I called up um, Susan Welchman. She was the editor who I was working with. The geographic and I said do you have the images you need for this story and she said no and I said well if I go you know I called the imam in Mali yeah I said have you done the mudding yet is there any chance you'll do it in this five-week period he said we haven't done it yet there's a chance depends on weather when people are getting married I mean there's all yeah. these factors yes. that you're like totally not in control of so long story short 
I went, I shot it, and they loved them, and they got, you know, and it was published. So wow, so you got, you got published in the Geographic. Yeah. And was that the, that wasn't the first publication your images were in, was it, or was it? It was the very first publication wow. my images were in. <laughs> I wonder if that's happened. I'm sure that's happened before, but that's yeah. definitely not common. I mean, the no. Geographic. I think there's tens of thousands of working photographers whose goal in life was to work for the Geographic. That's a great story. I had yeah, no idea. it was total chance. I mean, it was luck, you know. But. And so photography, and then you, what, so for the next X amount, of, how long was it between that event happening, taking the workshops at Santa Fe, till the time you decided, you know what, I want to get into sustainability and sort of the kids are getting at the age where I want to do this. Was that, that was probably what, a 10 or 15 eight year? Years. Eight years. Mm -hmm. okay. Eight years. Okay. No, so it, no ten, 10, I get, mm. so that was in 2000 and then, or yeah, 2000 and, and then, um, my son was born in 2004, okay. and I started kind of checking out from photography with him, and then my daughter was born in 2007, and then I ended up going back to grad school not until 2011, I think it was. Okay. So it was, it was, it was like an 11-year period. It just from... seems so recent. Everything just seems compressed when I think back, but yeah. I knew it had to be somewhere around 10 years. Yeah. The kids are such a drain. That's the moral <laughs> of that story, right, is that... You could have been a National Geographic photographer, but no, the kids. It's like, Mom, I need attention. Yeah, okay. That's a lesson to anyone out there going to have kids. But that's what this, uh, this interview is all about. And so, so then you start to you, – you're looking at sustainability. You're kind of drifting away uh, from photography as your full-time thing. Sustainability to me is one of those words that in 2011 it probably meant one thing. And today, even though technically it means the same thing, it's almost like organic. It's the – or – and environmental, it's a word that's used so commonly now, and it's almost as if people have co-opted that term for commercial purposes and financial purposes mm -hmm. and everything else. It's what always happens. Mm -hmm. So when you first looked at sustainability, what in your mind were you thinking about, and what was the sort of goal that you were going after with sustainability? Yeah. You know, I looked at, I mean, the messaging is there from all directions right now, right? And even back then, it was, you know, we're really looking at a dire situation right now with climate change. And I'm looking at my little kids and thinking, oh my gosh, I need to do right by them. And so I wasn't sure exactly which direction to take with that, but then my dad actually had just done a master's degree at Goddard College, and they had just started this sustainability program okay. there. And so he said, check out this program, maybe it's for you. So I did, and ended up going right away. And I think I just, I felt like, I love photography, but sometimes I feel like I'm just documenting the work that other, all the good work that's being done, but not doing the good work myself. I get that. And so I felt like I needed to be a more active participant in change, in the change I wanted to see. Okay. That makes sense. And so anyway, I did this degree and I, you know, started working in the community um, and some of that's education, which honestly, sometimes I'm like, just do the education through photography, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you can do it. They, sure. There's a lot of overlap, but then there's other things like writing this plan. I was on the sustainable Santa Fe commission, which is a mayor's kind of mayor appointed commission for the city. And so we did a lot of things in the city to kind of, um, add resilience to the city, um, reduce carbon emissions, set goals, um, develop programs and all that that foster those things. So that felt good to be to feel like I was making a difference. And what what is the definition of sustainable? And what, I mean, if you looked at a culture in general and you said, look, we're trying to be more sustainable, what's the easiest way to describe that in like layman's terms for, is there any easy description or does it encompass so many different conceivable things? It's funny because everybody says, well, I don't want to be sustainable. Like I want to go farther than that. Like we don't want to sustain this status quo, right? That's a good point. We want to be regenerative. Yeah. Regenerative. That's, we're talking to Courtney this morning. We exactly. were talking about that. Yeah. 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 And explain what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I feel like we have caused so much damage to, I mean, speaking of Courtney White, who you interviewed this morning, um, you know, to the land in particular mm -hmm. and our soils and our water systems. And, you know, there's so many things that have really um, borne the brunt of our kind of industrial revolution. You know, our atmosphere, obviously, is another one. Um, all sorts of pollution in the ocean, et cetera. So... 
um, regenerative to me is composting and kind of trying to rebuild the land. Courtney's work with adding meanders back into rivers that have been rutted out by wagon wheels and yeah. caused all kinds of damage. Um, you know, re- drawing down emissions through uh, planting more trees that have all been cut down. You know, so regenerating the landscape to um, to kind of go back to our three, 350 parts yeah. Really, that we were at, but we got to get back to, you know. And is this something that you're working on primarily on a local level, or do you have plans for regional, national, international? So far, it's really been local. And, I, you know, like I said, I've done a lot of work with the city, and I've also, um, I'm also involved with the Global Warming Express, which is a kids' organization. And so we teach kids about all of these concepts and teach them public speaking and they go out and fight the good fight as well. Oh, and that's interesting. It's Public super speaking. Fun. That's a great skill, yeah. for sure. <laughs> anyway, so um, a lot of it is education. And because a lot of it is habit changing, you know, we all need to be more aware of the impacts of our lives, you know, and what we can do to, you know, consumers can really shift that needle. Sure. With just through the food we buy, through, you know, the cars we drive, through the way we manage our houses or build our houses or our water. You know, it actually, all those little things really do make a difference. So I bought it. I just bought a truck. Okay. Full, full disclosure. <laughs> but but it's parked most of the time. I ride my bike. I just, ha- I just have to drive it from California to New Mexico, which I know is bad. It's probably erasing all the good I've done. But uh, anyway... That's, I, but, I, I'm you, not perfect. You know, and I'm not perfect either. And that is another piece of it. This society is really set up. You have to have a car in yeah. American society today, at least in cities like Santa Fe. You know, New York City, you can probably get by without one because yep. public transportation is established yep. in a way that you can do that. L.A., you need a oh, car, you know? It's the worst, yeah. And, it, and that's unfortunate because we don't have the systems, you know, Europe, Europe – Europeans have a much lower carbon footprint than we do, partly because they're just so condensed. I mean, everything is closer together. Yep. They have those public transportation systems in place. They have their food systems much closer to market, all of that. Um, and in America, it is really hard because everything is so spread out. And we haven't built our society in a way that fosters reducing emissions. And we've also had subsidized gasoline our entire lives. So yeah. in Europe, you know, when I used to go to Sicily every year and I'd, I'd rent a, what do you call those tiny uh, Mercedes? I forget what they're called. They're like a death trap, but I would rent those and, you know, it has the world's tiniest gas tank and yet it would be like 40 or 50 bucks every time I filled it up. And you're like, I'm not really sure I'm going to drive anywhere today. Like that's <laughs> right. my entire budget. So here, and it's something, subsidized gas was not something I ever really thought about. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember in high school, at one point, I can remember paying 65 cents a gallon for gas in Texas as wow. a kid. Wow. And then you think, oh, how, why did we build suburbs? Well, in part, we built suburbs because of subsidized gas. It was so cheap. We yeah. could do that. Yeah. And so a few months ago, I was driving from Los Angeles to Phoenix, and I 80 miles west of Phoenix, you hit suburbs. 80, 80 wow. miles, no public transportation. Oh, my God. Cheap, poorly made houses with air conditioning units on top. So they're poorly constructed, which means you have to heat them in the winter, cool them in the summer. There's no way to get into town other than getting on the I-10 with everybody else. And you think to yourself, when at some point is it going to end or stop or change or whatever? Which leads me to my next question. It's I think when you when you first thought of or first read or saw or thought of the word sustainable. Mm-hmm. And then you got a degree in that. What was the difference in what you thought it was originally? And when you got out with a degree in sustainability, was there some, was there any change there or refinement in terms of, oh, I think I see this in a different way? Or was it pretty much the same from when you first thought about it? I learned a lot, you know, since I start between the time I started and now, and I'm still learning. I mean, there is, it's an endless field and it's ever evolving. Um, and unfortunately, I don't see any, uh, you know, I guess, you know, you start off with this idealized notion that we're <laughs> going to have this magic bullet that's just going to solve all the woes of the world, right? Um, and, you know, that's, there is no magic bullet. It does take a concerted effort in multiple fields across the board. And I keep getting surprised. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say this, but, you know, Paul Hawken just wrote a book called Drawdown. And I took, they have a little online quiz that tests your knowledge about 
Oh, really? You know, like, yeah. what's the best way to reduce emissions, right? So I'm like, oh, I got this. You know, I'm going to take this little online quiz. Totally failed the quiz. I really? Mean, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? And, you know, a lot of those answers are really surprising. Like, the number one way to re- to draw down, right, to yeah. reduce these carbon, these greenhouse gas emissions is refrigerants. Oh, interesting. Which I was not high on my radar. Yeah, me neither. I was thinking, you know wind and solar energy. I was thinking, you know, changing our agricultural system so we aren't trucking food so far. We're yep. regenerating our soils. We're not losing so much carbon from our soils. Yep. Um, I mean, I was thinking on a whole bunch of levels that wasn't refrigerants, you know. And what, what does that mean, refrigerants, exactly? Well, you think about, well, it's, it's um, I can't remember the chemicals that are used right now. I should know this, but um, Basically, these chemicals that, that are used when they're, you know, to truck refrigerated goods across oh, the yeah, country, yeah. the the little refrigerators that are in every hotel room now, oh, yeah. you know, they're cheap little things. They don't use high-quality refrigerants, and they're major greenhouse gas pollutants. Wow. Um, all, all of these things, you know, we think about um, the fast food notion, you know, a lot of things are frozen and then shipped long distances, and then we want to be able to have our, you know— basically what the equivalent of a TV dinner, you know, used yeah. to be. Um, it's the same thing. So <laughs> the TV um, dinner. it's this, I know, right? <laughs> Back in oh, the day. Those are, uh, yeah, hungry man. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But, you know, you think about how many things, you know, you, you go to the, any grocery store, there's a huge frozen goods aisle. I mean, there, typically there's two full rows of double-sided yeah. refrigeration. Right. Yeah. I yeah. never thought about that as a pollutant. Yeah. yeah. And it was not high on my radar either. But now I'm thinking about it, I'm like, holy cow, there's, there's a lot there. And if we were just, you know, imagine the difference between that and buying fresh lettuce or, you know, or say something like spinach that might, you might buy frozen or something. I don't know, whatever. Um, you know, buying that at the farmer's market in town, the difference in the sure the climate energy impact, yeah, yeah, the energy required and the greenhouse gas emissions required because of those refrigerants and trucking things, et cetera. It's huge. Um, so, Anyway, those kinds of things I continue to learn. Um, Yeah, because it seems to me that sustainability is a relatively new field. I mean, like you said, they just started their degree. Goddard College started Mm -hmm. their degree in sustainability, whereas I went to school and graduated in 92. I don't remember... I don't remember ever hearing the word environment. I didn't hear green. I didn't hear sustainable. That just wasn't in the the dialogue at that time. Right. Uh, I'm curious if, if you're being a creative person how that works as an advantage. Like talking to Courtney this morning, we were talking about the concept of story, and I think that's a really important thing. Being creative, how does your creative background play into your sustainable foreground? Um, Other than you are still using photography and will probably continue to use photography into the future. Mm-hmm. So another thing I started, um, I took a climate master's class in 2012, and one of the requirements for the class is that you had to give 30 hours of volunteer work to your community. Okay. And to make a long story short, we started Renewable Energy Day out of that. And I decided I didn't want it to be just like all those other days that, you know, you've got... Earth Day. Well, it's <laughs> Mother's, all, Mother's Day. Well, it's it's at the legislature, right? So there's Oil and Gas Day. Oh, God. And there's, you know, Health Day or whatever. They have all these different days, but they didn't have anything about renewable energy. And oil and gas had a you know, had their stamp in there. So I said, okay, we're going to do this differently. So this is the creativity piece. So I ran it for three years and every year I would get anywhere from five to 10 schools involved and we'd do a big art project around sustainability. So we'd do an educational piece, we'd do a big art project and that would be the backdrop for the press conference was all this artwork that the kids had done. And one of my goals was to really open up our Capitol building. There are so many people who have never stepped foot in there. Yeah. They don't know how to talk to their legislators. They don't understand how that system works. And so I wanted to get kids involved and get their parents involved and get them to this press conference and get them to a training that we held to teach the parents and the kids and everybody else how to talk with their legislators and what the issues were at the time and why it's important to be involved in your state's government and and what happens if you aren't, 
you know? Yeah. Um, so I guess the creativity piece there was really opening it up. I mean, we brought in solar ovens outside and baked cookies. We had a little bicycle that would light up different light bulbs, you know, and it was harder to pedal when it was the incandescent and oh, it got yeah. really easy with the LED, right? So just to show how much energy each one takes. Um, we brought electric cars to show all these different electric cars that were there. So anyway, we um, that's, I guess, the creativity piece is the, the, our Capitol building doesn't need to be this stuffy place full of suits and shouldn't only be accessible to them. Yeah. It should be accessible to everyone. And let's take, let's take charge of that and, and celebrate it and, yeah, be creative about it. I think creatives um, have a lot of responsibilities in our culture that don't often get talked about. I think people don't give creatives credit. Uh, they certainly don't give creatives credit when it comes to things like the GDP and what they bring back into into culture. But I think in many ways, creatives are translators. And mm -hmm. you've got a topic like sustainability. And that word has been used so much now that it sort of is, there's, an, there's a word fatigue or dialogue fatigue with it. And I think that's where the creative part really sets people like you apart from other people who are involved in that particular industry, whereas you have this other way of sort of telling the same story through these other means. Mm -hmm. Which leads me to another question here, which is a little bit on the depressing side, but um, I think, you know, is Trump in the White House. And I think, you know, we've seen the last like 140 days. I think it's very easy for everyone to point a finger and blame every single conceivable ill on this guy and his cabinet and everybody else. But I think that's a real, that's an easy way out. I think these issues have been going on a long time. Not that he doesn't deserve a lot of it and his cabinet kind of makes me ill, but um, what's, what's your advice to people who think about sustainability and just kind of go, oh, you know, how am I going to do anything? What am I going to do to get involved? And I think you, you sort of spoke to this earlier, which really made me think when I asked you if you were working on a local level or regional and you were like a mostly local. And, and really what made me think about was it's even a, a micro level beyond local. It's just your house. It's yourself. Mm -hmm. And is that, is that the best thing for people to do if they want to get involved, if they want to pitch in and learn about sustainability or be more sustainable? Is that all it really takes? You know, I, I teach Climate Masters now, and we just had our energy speaker come, and he handed out LED light bulbs to everybody. And he said, now what I want you to do is use this light bulb and then go buy a pack and pass them out to your neighbors. And he said, if everybody switched to LED light bulbs in their houses, we could shut down the Four Corners coal-fired power plant. We would not need it anymore. Wow. So, yes, it does happen at the house level. It can, you know, if everybody did their part using LED light bulbs, biking more like you're talking about, mm -hmm. um, changing their buying habits in terms of food, buying more local foods and less refrigerated or frozen foods, um, it, it does add up and it makes a big difference. And organic foods, I mean, that's another big piece that I think that I'm pretty passionate about and want people to be aware of is all of these pesticides and um, just the agricultural <sighs> system where you, yeah. where we're plowing so deeply, all of that plowing and all of those chemicals kill the soil and the soil is just releasing huge amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. Yep. And it's also running off and killing huge swaths of the ocean, right? You have these, these the big plumes, the big, yeah, it's disgusting. And it, where there's no oxygen left in the water because of all of this. And if everybody switched to, uh, vegetables that are farmed, with regenerative agricultural practices, right. organic regenerative agriculture, where you're not plowing so deep, you know, you're not, if at all, um, you're doing a lot more rotations, you're keeping the soil covered, you're not using these chemicals that are going to kill it. If everybody did that and switched their light bulbs yeah. and drove less, huge impact. It actually would make a huge difference. And people, like you said, a lot of people feel like, oh, I'm just one person. It's not going to make a difference. But one person talks to their neighbor, talks to their neighbor, and it becomes cool, and people become aware, and it trickles out. I think it's, it's really hard. I mean, I think people feel kind of helpless, and I think uh, they look around and they, they see what's happening. I also think it's very easy to get distracted these days in terms of, like, I got the Internet, I got television. Mm -hmm. Television is good for the first time in my lifetime, except for Miami Vice, which is the best television show in history. That's another interview entirely. But I think people people feel kind of helpless and they're distracted and you look around and you think, oh, you know, I, and you can't turn the news on without or read the news online without seeing climate change issues. Mm -hmm. And then we have, you know, the administration that we have now, which is which is pretty challenging. What if you had to define like the single
single biggest obstacle for sustainability for you or for in general? Is there one thing that sort of jumps out? Is it complacency or misinformation or just laziness? Capitalism. Capitalism. That was a quick response. Well, I really do think, I think that we do not have a democracy anymore. You know, it's really run by these huge corporations and they have their interests at heart. They don't have the interests of the people at heart or the climate. They want to make their money and they're going to lobby for it and they're going to get laws passed the way they want them passed. And I think in our government, in our governmental system, it, it has huge impacts across the board. And this is why we don't, ha- you know, this is why we're pulling out of the Paris climate yeah. agreement. That That's the reason, you know, it's, it's Trump and his cronies wanting to make more money. It, and it does not benefit anyone except for them. It, you know, yeah. the people who are going to benefit monetarily. Soon they'll see though that, oh, you know, I'm making more money, but my entire environment is collapsing around me. And it's, it's a short-term game, you know? I'm wondering, you know, in the last 50, 75 years, we saw an unparalleled migration with mm-hmm. humans going from an, a rural culture, rural species, really, into a, a species that now lives primarily in cities around the world. You know, more than, more than uh, the bulk of the American population now lives in the city. And Courtney was saying this morning, which I didn't know, was that it used to be 60 to, 60 to 70% of the population in the U.S. was farm, farm and ranch related, and now it's 2%. Mm-hmm. And that is, I, it took me about 20 minutes into that after he had said that before it finally dawned on me just how significant that really is when you think about it. And I had said to him that in, growing up on a ranch part-time, it was interesting to see how many generations now we've had of people who are completely out of touch with the land. And I don't mean out of touch in a negative way. It's just that they were born away from rural areas. They were born away from any contact with the environment or nature. And how do you think that that has helped or hurt the sustainability movement? I, I mean, I think hurting is obvious, but in some ways, maybe firing up the sustainability is illuminating these people for the first time in their lives that they might actually not know some of the basic things about agriculture and mm-hmm. water and things like that. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's very true. I think there are a lot of people who don't don't go outside of the city at all. You know, I mean, even here in Santa Fe, I lead hikes, I lead kids groups up into our upper watershed. And I've had parents say, no, you're, you know, you're not allowed to go on this hike because I'm scared you'll get, like, eaten by a bear or something, you know? And I'm like, oh, we're making so much noise, they're really scared of us. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but they, a lot of these kids have never been on a hike. They, you know, it just connecting at all with nature, it's, like, completely foreign. And yeah. that's in Santa Fe. I mean, you think about bigger cities, and we have nature all around us, yeah. right? it's hard to avoid here. It's hard to avoid. But, um, yeah, I think that there's – maybe a fear of what you don't know or whatever. And then, yeah, I think people are very disconnected about their food in particular. They don't, you know, the CAFOs, the Concentrated Animal Feed Operations, whatever it stands for. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that most people who are eating at these fast food restaurants don't really understand where that food's coming from and don't... Or what it is. What it is, exactly. But I think you were just about to say, or don't care. They don't well, and that's another piece is that in this in that goes back to capitalism, you know, we've got very wealthy people at the top, and we have a lot of people who are scraping to get by, and they don't have the time to care. They are working their tails off. Yeah, and you know, like I said, some of these kids, like one little girl, she was there and she didn't have her lunch with her. Everybody was supposed to pack a lunch. Well, her mom works a night shift. Her dad leaves before she goes to school. She barely sees her parents because everybody's just scraping to get by. And she's, you know, trying to do the best she can as this little elementary school girl, you know. And I do, I think that there's a lot of that where, yes, we can say they don't care, but I, you know, they don't have the time to care. You know, they are, they are in survival mode. Yeah, and to me, when I said they don't care, it's not as if there's some malicious part of them that says, I don't care about the environment. It's just that, like you said, there's so much on the plate. Mm-hmm. They have, um, they're, they're, they're just getting by, and the fast food is there, and it's like a, it's a, it's a custom that they've grown, grown accustomed. They've probably been eating it their whole life, and mm-hmm. 
And it's just not something that can enter into that, into the mindset of, you know what, I can't really think about this right now. I just need food. I'm hungry. It's here. I'm going to eat that. Right. And it's a really difficult cycle to break. And that, that's to me, when I look at the news and I think about sustainability, I see the cycle and it's like, we are so entrenched in the cycle mm-hmm. that at some points you feel like, oh man, I don't know what, how we're ever going to get out of this. Yeah. You throw Trump on top of it and then you're like, okay, now it's like at comical levels. But at the same time, to me, it seems like the perfect opportunity to dig down even deeper and to double down and say, okay, now if, it, if we don't do it now, it's like, it's, you know, we're going to run out of time basically. Yeah. Well, we are. Yeah. 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 And, and that going back to Paul Hawkins book, Drawdown, I think um, he had a lot of things in there that again, weren't, for example, girls' education was higher on the list than solar panels, mm. which I thought was really interesting. And that ties into population, right? Okay. You educate your girls. Um, they're going to, have fewer kids. They're going to buy better food. They're going to be more conscious about that. They're they'll maybe have a job that will then allow them to make more money to supplement the income of the family. I mean, there are a lot of things that go with that. Um, Brazil, I don't have the statistics in for, you know with me right now, but they went from a very high birth rate, and within one generation, they you know they were say it was five or six. <clears throat> they, within one generation, they were closer to two, and that's all women's education. So wow. I think the education piece is huge when you're talking about this. Sure. Um, they can get better jobs. They can um, earn more money. So they can make better food choices, and they aren't just totally scraping by. Yeah, now my head is spinning thinking about that and also thinking about the LED thing. <laughs> what is, for you, job-wise, in the sustainability world, the photography world, what's the dream? Do you ever think about that? Like, if I, if I could have anything I wanted and budgeting was not an issue and would it be a sustainability center in Santa Fe? Would it be traveling to do this? Would it be having funding to, to fund other people? Would it be an, a worldwide education thing? What would you ever think about that? I think about it all the time, not yeah. about sustainability, but like, you know, having a, a, hot, a hot tub made of gold, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> the <laughs> dream the, tub. Yeah, the dream tub, just the important <laughs> stuff. <laughs> oh, God. Um, Gosh, I mean, a lot because of... I, I honestly think you have to think about it because yeah. at some point you may have the opportunity and somebody may come to you with funding and say, look, we've been watching what you're doing. What is it? You know, we're going to fund you. What do you want? I, I have, I'm not joking. I have a whole scenario in my head of what I would do. It's something I've been thinking about for about 10 years that's based in Santa Fe, but you know, it's another thing. And I keep waiting at some point, maybe someone will come along and say, okay, hey, we're going to give you funding for this, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. But on, I'm, no, I'm asking you. It. It's my interview. <laughs> you have to answer, not me. Oh man. I feel like that, that dream scenario has evolved and it's, I feel like it's kind of evolving right now. Um, I would love to do more, have photography be a higher percentage of my time Okay. Um, to tell these stories, yep. to do the storytelling that I think really needs to be done. And I started last summer with photographing regenerative agriculture. I think that's a big one. And you come from Wyoming in the West and knowing yeah. how land management sure. can and should work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I do think that's a really important piece. Um, and then looking at drawdown, I you know I started thinking, oh my god, this refrigerant thing. I <laughs> the damn it was not on my radar. I can't believe it wasn't on my radar. So now I'm like, God, I would love to do a story on that. I think it'd be so fascinating. Yeah. And really look at what that looks like, not just in the United States, but in India, in China. You know these areas that are really booming right now. Yep. I was I was just in, in India in March, and the development there is going. It's so fast, and it's all these slapped together houses yep. like you were talking about that aren't built to take advantage of their placement in relation to the sun, for example, or um, you know harvest water so it can be reused, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot that can be done mm-hmm. to reduce emissions in the building of a house. That's another topic altogether. But, um, so yes, I would love to do a story like that. I would, I, would, I mean, gonna, that's a short-term answer, I guess. But. No, that's okay. I'm going to draw two things together, which is 
the concept of sustain sustainability and the concept of photography. Mm-hmm. And as we've seen over the past 20 years, photography is a very different place than it was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's a hell of a lot harder today to be a photographer than it was 20 years ago, mm-hmm. even though you have the internet, you have the digital space. But we've seen, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of friends who are looking for exit plans to get out of photography. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about being able to do stories like that, that in itself kind of presents another question slash scenario slash problem, which mm-hmm. is how the hell do you get paid? How do you make a living exactly. doing the kind of photography that you want to do? I certainly have no answers. I've seen some people come up with some pretty original things, but I haven't seen a really great solution for that. Right. And I think that there are, at least from the creative field, I would say that 80% of the photographers I know would want to be involved in doing projects like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of the dream scenario of projects is you're working on something that matters. Mm-hmm. It's something that you care about. It's something that you're going to be able to make your own work. The hard part is the sustainability part of that is who the hell funds that now, who publishes it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I guess basically what I've just done is like open this whole other can of worms about like where does that work run? Who's interest? you know, does that sell magazines or does that, you know, it's a whole scenario, which is again why talking about the dream scenario is your dream scenario has to have its print, print arm, you know, so you publish your own, your own stuff, you know, you build your own ecosystem. That's my advice, of course. I guess, but then it goes it goes back to that initial question of how is that funded, you know, initially? How is it? How does it pay for itself? Um, because unfortunately, a lot of these stories, like the refrigerant story or regenerative agriculture or whatever, um, there are big companies who don't want those stories stories oh, told. Of course, and yep. they, you know, and it, it would be lovely if it were the if it, if it were flipped. Right. Sure. Like these big companies wanted these stories told and they'd be so willing to pay you to do it. Right. Exactly. But it's the exact opposite. And so, yeah, it definitely is an uphill battle to. But it's important, too. I mean, I think these are really important stories um, that people need to we need to have constantly around us, you know. I, yeah, I mean, I think they're visual, they're interesting, they're they're relevant, mm-hmm. um, they're timely. It's yeah. everything that used to be what people wanted. And then, yeah. like you said, things are, it's a very different playing field now. Yeah. And um, I don't know what the solution is, but I think that, that um, adding the creativity side to the sustainability side is a, is a pretty interesting, you know, formula for the future. I just right. don't know what the actual, yeah. I was hoping you had some answer for me oh, that man. was like cut and dry. Yeah, you had your hopes a little too high, I'm afraid. What's the next photo project you're going to work on besides the refrigeration deal? (laughs) (laughs) You're starting that now, right? As soon as we're done? Yeah, right. (laughs) Honestly, I'm not sure. I, um, you know, I've been doing little things like, uh, been involved with this boat project here in Santa Fe and it's also with kids and schools. I mean, I do boats in the desert, high desert. What's happening? I know it's kind of a long story, but anyway, so documenting the process of we get all these kids to make these tiles and then we did a permanent installation of a boat and that in the concept is we're all in the same boat earth, right? Okay. Together. And we all need to do our part. Right. So anyway, um, uh, that I've shot, but we have to, figure out where that goes now. We've talked about a book. We've talked about whatever. Oh, yeah, a book. Um, Tell me about that. You're going to do a book, right? Of course, you have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone has to say that that's their plan. Cut down some trees. You know, it's very sustainable. Exactly, exactly. So it might have to be just like an online something, right? Yeah, I mean, and that actually brings up another thing. It's like anything you do. Yep, there's an impact. It is an impact using your computer. You know, if I'm really honest, the most sustainable kind of lifestyle that I've ever led by far is when I lived in my tiny little village in Mali. I was going to say, it had to be Mali. It totally was. We ate out of gourds. I pulled my water out of a well, you know, by hand. I rode a bicycle. I, you know, we grew our food right around the village. That's what we ate, you know, or we traded in the market or whatever. Um, There's, there's so, uh, you know, nothing was like, there was no electricity, nothing electronic. Yeah. Um, and, and so I know deep down, like, that's the recipe that we actually kind of really need to go back to yeah. in a lot of ways, you yeah. know? Um, but getting there from here to there, that's yeah, it's not impossible. happen. <laughs> it's just not. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, again, I think it's what you said earlier about education. I think it's looking at that and saying, okay, this was a model that works in a lot of ways, but obviously we have to scale that up to the modern culture, modern society globally. And you're mm-hmm. like, okay, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. But it's, look, you know, I look at my little casita in Santa Fe, and I don't have LEDs. I'm like, okay, LEDs would be great. Um, I don't have air conditioning, which I would love to have today, but, <laughs> but I, I don't need air conditioning. 
I look at the rooftop and think, why can I not grow on the rooftop? Mm -hmm. You know, it's flat roof. It's going to leak anyway. There's water up there. So everybody's roof leaks here. You might as well grow something. But then you're like, oh, I'm in the historic district. They would never allow that. And so you have, and, and, but at the same time, I'm, I'm a fan of the historic district. I don't want, you know, prefab crap thrown up in this, in the same neighborhood. But it's so complicated and so interesting to think about the formula, the mathematical formula that mm -hmm. somehow gets humans to click together to go wait. And maybe that formula is the maybe the the final equation is about it's it's either do this or or go away. I mean, our species is going to go away. Well, it is. Yeah. I mean, I think it was um, Stephen Hawking just predicted we have about a hundred years. Wow, I'm uh, getting my gold hot tub tomorrow. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. When I heard that, I said. What? A hundred years? I mean, that is... That's nothing. That is a blink of an eye. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we do need to make some serious changes because it, it, we can see it. it. We have record temperatures across the world right now, and we're not going to be able to grow our food yeah. for a whole lot longer if we keep on this trajectory, you know? Yeah. It's kind of... It's pretty scary, pretty sobering it is. to think about that. Yeah. But I want to end on a positive note. Oh, goodness, yes. Okay. Because we'll come back. We're going to redo this interview at some point down the road when, you know, your sustainability compound is here in Santa Fe, run on LEDs, of course. But um, what's what do, you, what do you see your future as? Photography, sustainability, a combination, an author? I think it, ha it, it will be some combination of both. Um... Yeah, writing could be, I mean, I think, I don't know how to answer that right now, quite honestly. No, it's good. Look, I think I think that's an honest answer. And I think a, a significant portion of the creative people that I know are in the exact same boat. I mean, if you look at me in 2010, I said, I'm not, I, on a Tuesday, I quit photography. I said, I'm not a photographer anymore. And I deleted my email account. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know where I was going to go. I had no idea. All I knew was I didn't want to do that anymore. And I, I thought I would come to Santa Fe and redefine my life and get a different job in a different industry mm -hmm. because it wasn't working. I looked at it and said, this isn't really working the way I want. I don't see it the same way. And more importantly, the people in the world are not looking at what I'm doing in the same way. It doesn't have the same relevance or impact. It's not, not to say photography is bad. I love it. But it's just different. And so I think not knowing exactly, I think the, the bulk of the human population is in the same predicament. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think at least people in the first and second worlds are – in that, in that area where it's like, I don't know what the future is. You know, mm -hmm. we used to be able to look down, you know, you got jobs, a corporate job, or you worked in for Ford or Chevy or whatever it was, or you worked at the local hardware store. And I have a friend in Texas who's worked at the hardware store, his family's hardware store for like 35 years. Mm -hmm. But those are rare now. Everybody's transient in terms of what they're doing. So I think mm -hmm. it's, it's good to be honest in that way. And it's okay to not know. Mm -hmm. And with how many things are changing, I mean, you turn on the TV, you just don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. And I think that actually in this society, you have to be a little bit flexible that way. Is what, well, maybe you don't have to be, but that's what I have observed for myself. I think that... Um, you know, what's interesting to me, I was just thinking about this, and in the back of my head, I'm like, I can't believe I'm about to say this, because there's plenty of reasons to make fun of millennials. But I have to say, the one of the hopes that I see, oddly enough, is with millennials, because millennials came out into a transient workspace mm -hmm. you know they got out and they didn't have the same opportunities ever there was all the turmoil but they're also incredibly focused able to multitask driven know what they want know what they don't want and i think that they looking at the future there's there's hope there that they will find a way to sort of consolidate the things that we're talking about mm -hmm. and uh and make progress mm -hmm. which is the key is progress just yeah. a little bit of progress yeah. especially at the federal you know the high uh, treetop level yeah and uh, God, I just you know, it would be nice to to see a big a big win or a big score here at some point in terms of environment God, something. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we need a lot of wins in a lot of sectors right now. Um, yeah, and we can't sit on our laurels, unfortunately. No, we need all hands on deck. No hot tub time now. No hot tub time. Uh, and j what kind of camera do you use? Because I know that 90% of the people listening to this, I'm just kidding, but, you know. <laughs> that, hey, man, why are you talking about all this sustainability stuff? Talk about cameras. Right. Um, any, like, any, anything, any final, final thoughts here? I we, think are, we are at smoking hot temperatures in Santa Fe right now. We are. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. All over. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
let's see. I just think that if everybody, or, okay, for myself and for my kids and and my husband too, he's a photographer, um, and his real focus is renewable energy, uh, photographing renewable energy projects. But I think, you know, I guess I just want to say, like, if, it, just do your part. Like, do it, do what you think will lead, will be for the greater good, you know, even if it seems really small. Um, and I think all of that adds up. And so for me, that's what I'm just trying to do. And when I see openings that seem like the right direction, mm -hmm. that's where I go. Um, yeah, I mean, I think living by example of saying, you know, hey, I ride my bike instead of drive my car. I have LEDs in the house. And I think it's funny because I think people get defensive and reactionary when you talk about, sometimes when you talk about stuff like this, because they go, oh, you know, I'm not like, like me, I don't have LED lighting and I bought a, I just bought a pickup truck. So it's like, okay, those are two strikes maybe against me. So what do I do to compensate? And at least the ideas are in my head during the day of like, how do I reduce what I'm doing? I don't need that plastic bag at the store. I bought an ice cream thing last night and the guy's like, here's a bag. I said, no, I don't need another plastic bag. I'll just mm -hmm. walk home. And it seems like nothing. But when you consider that that grocery store probably had 5,000 people in it at that moment taking plastic bags home, one spot, one location, one town at one time, yeah. magnified over the course of 24 hours in this one city, and you start to go, oh, okay, maybe that one little bag is a, is a lot more than that one little bag. Yeah. yeah. No, it does add up. Yeah, exactly. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I appreciate you inviting me to do These this. These are not easy questions. Um, this is a little bit different interview because we talked a lot less about photography, but more about sustainability, which I think is a super inter interesting thing. I'm very curious to see what you do in the future, combining the two. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, finding the solution to the funding and photography and stories and sustainability is a pretty interesting equation to think about. Maybe Tough we should one. ask Stephen Hawking, you know, Maybe about we those should. guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you again for taking the time. Thank you, Dan. And uh, hopefully we can do this again. That'd be fun. Thanks. Right. Yep, no problem. Thank you. We'll see you later. Okay.